here we are at the end of a year, the end of a very interesting, seemingly longer than normal, although from a day's standpoint, the same as every other year, except, well, this is a leap year, right? So we had an extra day. Uh, but I think, uh, I think leap day happened before the pandemic hit. So in that, in that way, we weren't thinking about one more day of 2020 as being that bad. But here we are. And as I'm reminded, thinking ahead to this coming Christmas season, I, I really do love this time of year. Um, it, it's my favorite time of year because of great memories that I have from growing up in New Canaan, Connecticut, and having uh, just fond memories, especially of Christmas Eve. Although, sadly, I saw a headline yesterday online that said that the the Christmas Eve tradition of singing carols at God's Acre, Dad, which we used to go and do, everyone in the, well, not everyone, but a lot of people in the town would come together. You'd get your lyrics for the carols that you were singing in the town paper the, the week before, and you'd bring that page with you, with your candles and your flashlights, and everyone would gather on this hill between these churches, and the town band would play Christmas carols on Christmas Eve. And uh, they've noticed, notified everyone that that has been canceled as well this year. So it has been a challenging year, um, but I still do love it because it is the season of Advent. Now, some people really get into this season maybe a little bit more than others. Uh, whether you attend the chapel or another church, you, you may have Christmas decorations out as we do here on our campus. Some people really like to decorate. And I saw a picture I just thought I'd throw up here. It, it may be a little hard to see from the distance, but this guy's house, every square foot of the exterior of his house is covered in lights. And um, I got to I gotta say, that guy probably gets some kind of a, an award, at least I hope so, to offset the utility bills that he has in January. Um, but uh, this is our final lesson here. And just to reiterate, we do have a survey online that was sent out to you via email. If you are following us online, welcome. We are so glad that you are joining us, whether you're live or joining us later. If you do not have access to that survey because you're not on our email list, we, you can email me, hruch at wcchapel.org, um, and I would love to send you that survey so that we could get your feedback for what we will study and look ahead to in January when we gather back together again. But as we prepare for our final lesson, last week Max did a wonderful job of looking at Peter part 3 from John chapter 21 and looking at Peter being restored after denying Jesus around a fire, as we're sitting here around some fires, uh, three times. Jesus restored him around a different fire three times. And it was a really encouraging message. So thank you, Max, for, for sharing that with us and sharing that with me last week. Um, we come now to our final week as we've been on this journey together. And uh, our final lesson is, uh, you will be my witnesses from the book of Acts chapter 1. And this will be, I think, an appropriate way to conclude this session and these lessons that we've been learning on lives from the disciples. Um, and so if you have a Bible, turn there or, or open up your, your smartphone or your tablet to your Bible app. And we'll be looking at Acts chapter 1, remembering, of course... Because repetition is the mother of all learning, as I've heard more than once, that our thesis is that Jesus uses ordinary men to accomplish his extraordinary mission. And we're going to see a, a fascinating connection with our thesis and what Jesus 
equips his men to do as we look at our passage today. And we know that we are to be engaged in this mission of making disciples. So what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is called to faith in Jesus Christ, to follow after Jesus Christ and obey Him, to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ and tell others about Him, and then finally to fellowship in the family of Jesus Christ. So that is what we are focusing on today and have been focusing on throughout the semester. Now, uh, in my opinion, no good message about the Bible is complete without at least one map. So, like Max said last week, he was able to use his old map when he, uh, when he taught again. This is, this is a map that I've used a few times. And this is the context for Acts chapter 1. We're still in, obviously, ancient Israel or ancient Palestine. We're still in Jerusalem. And that's significant because before uh, the action that we see today, Jesus told his men, wait, and this is in Luke chapter 24, wait until I give you essentially the promised Holy Spirit. And we'll see that the Holy Spirit is essential to what we we talk about and learn about today. So uh, this is a a map of of the ancient city of Israel. The disciples are here, they're, they're obeying Jesus, and they're waiting. So... What has happened as we look at the context of Acts chapter 1 is as follows. Um, just some items of note, which uh, to me are interesting. Uh, Acts is a volume 2 of a volume 1. Does anybody know what the volume 1 is? It's the Gospel of Luke. Right, yeah, oh yeah. Um, sorry, spoiler alert there. Yeah, I'm just... Guys, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm trying to help. <laughs> So Luke is volume one, the Gospel of Luke, and the same author, Dr. Luke, a very detailed historian, is writing and has written volume two, which is the book of Acts. And like any good movie deserves a good sequel, uh, this is an exciting book. Now, it's interesting to note that Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. Paul wrote 23%. John wrote 20%. So what that means is that Luke wrote more words of the New Testament than any other single author. Some people think, well, it must have been Paul because he wrote so many letters. And yes, Paul wrote more books of the New Testament, but Luke wrote more words of the New Testament than any other author, which I find interesting. So when you go to your family Christmas gatherings, you can impress them with this data, and they will will be listening with bated breath at all of your knowledge. Um, This book is often referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. That is a title, um, it's not, not in Scripture per se, um, it's not in Scripture, but it's a title that probably from about the second century has been given to this book. Um, and so the context is that Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised, he's been appearing for a period of 40 days to his disciples and to others, and he gathers his, dis- gathers his disciples together for one final lesson. One farewell address, one last lecture, literally before he leaves them, to ascend to be with the Father. And so this is where we read of a well-known historical fact from Jesus' life of the ascension. So um, just thinking about what would you say to your students with your last opportunity to speak to them before you leave. So uh, this is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Oh, and by the way, there are a lot of great artistic depictions of the Ascension. This is one by a guy named John Singleton Copley, 
who was an American co- uh, colonial artist. Uh, and you can look up a lot of fascinating depictions of the Ascension. And here's the text. We read, starting in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, uh, Theophilus himself is, a, is the individual that Luke uh, is writing to. Uh, we're not exactly sure why he chose to write to this person. Uh, Theophilus's name means lover of God. And so maybe Luke understood Theophilus to be an important leader or someone who would continue to communicate what he's writing. But he writes to him in the book of, of the Gospel of Luke as well as here. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering and many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Keep that in mind, what Jesus is speaking about, the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Um, Fascinating, fascinating passage. An interesting way for Jesus to give his final words. He, He didn't say a lot, at least not in this final moment. For 40 days, I'm sure he told them a lot. But his last words that we read to uh to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, are very interesting. So, ordinary men, and Jesus gives them this extraordinary mission, and they were used by Jesus to shape the world. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So, what can we learn from these lessons, these final lessons that Jesus taught, as we apply them to our lives? The first is that Jesus' message is central to his extraordinary mission. Did you notice that what Jesus was teaching them for 40 days, he was teaching and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. This was always Jesus' message, right? If we learn and read about his teachings in the Gospels, he was constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like. He said oftentimes, the kingdom is near at hand. You are not far from the kingdom. The kingdom of God seems to be one of the most, if not the most, important theme of the entire Bible. And what do I mean by that? I had a professor who once said he thought that the kingdom of God was the theme of the Scriptures. Well, if we go back to an understanding what the kingdom of God really is, it's God's reign and rule over all creation 
specifically in the area of the redeeming and saving work of God in the broken world. But the kingdom of God goes back before the world was even broken. Because we know in Genesis 1, God created man and woman, and he gave them a mandate. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In this way, the first man and woman were God's representatives to reign on his behalf over creation, over the animals, over the created world in that beautiful garden. And then Genesis 3 happens, and God's kingdom plan, at least from a human standpoint, appears to be disrupted, but never from God's standpoint, because he's always on the throne and he's always in control. God then moves a few chapters later to find a man named Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says to him, you are going to be a blessing. Through you, I'm going to bless the world and all nations. And so we see God's kingdom plan is is taking a shift in a new direction through this man named Abraham, his chosen servant. We move forward to see that Abraham's descendants would be the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And through this chosen people, this chosen nation, God would continue to move his kingdom plan forward through these people who were to be holy and set apart and represent him to the other nations. We see that God even gave his people a king to rule over their kingdom as a representative of God's greater kingdom. That king was at first Saul, but then that became David, who became this chosen Messiah, lowercase m, that God wanted to rule his people as a representative on God's behalf. Then we fast forward and we see the person of Jesus, who is the descendant of David who is the ultimate Israel through his suffering, who is the descendant of Abraham, who would be the blessing to the nations, who would reverse all that went wrong in Genesis 3, who will one day come back to make all things new so that God's kingdom will be reestablished with perfect righteousness, justice, and peace as it was always intended to be in the last garden, just like it was in the first garden. So do you see how there's this great enveloping theme of the kingdom of God throughout all of Scripture. And Jesus is the one who fulfills it all because He is the coming King who came at Bethlehem and the coming King of kings and Lord of lords who is coming again. Uh, That is this theme, and that is what Jesus taught. And Jesus' message to His disciples was a very hopeful one. Now, that's why they, well, they ask him in verse 6, Lord, is it now at this time that you're going to establish, or sorry, restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they knew that Jesus as the Messiah was the promised one who would one day sit on the throne of David and rule the people again as the Old Testament scriptures had said. And they were looking forward to that. Well, Lord, it seems like now everything's lined up. You're, you're back from the dead and that's great. And you've been teaching us about the kingdom. Are you going to restore it now? And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. So he doesn't actually rebuke them, but he just says, that's not for you to know. I have other kingdom priorities for you to focus on right now. Jesus wanted them, he wanted to expand their understanding of the kingdom so that they might be the ones to expand God's kingdom on earth. And it would go beyond Israel to the whole world, all nations. Uh, We find that Jesus was always doing what he said he would do in preaching the kingdom of God. In Luke 4.43, we read, 
He, that is Jesus, said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's why Jesus came. Yes, His miracles were important, but His miracles pointed to the message, and the message was that of preaching the kingdom, the good news. Jesus' kingdom message was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come to save. You can only come to the Father through me by faith. That is why when I have come now near to you, that is why the kingdom of God is near to you. The gospel message of the kingdom has been unchanged throughout God's... um, It's changed in one sense because way back in Genesis 1, God didn't explicitly say, oh yeah, my son will be born in Bethlehem on Christmas and he's going to die on a cross for your sins. It wasn't explicit back then. But as we see the bigger picture, we see that God has always been about his kingdom. And we see that Jesus' message about the kingdom never changed. That is why he came. And uh, it's a simple, unchanging message that I think could be boiled down like this. He lived for you. He died for you. He lives again that you might too. And I think that is good news. And as we get to this point of the year, a difficult year, I think it is important to understand this good message and this good news of the kingdom of God. Amen? This message was central to all that Jesus was about in his extraordinary mission. It's central to it. Well, what else is essential to Jesus' mission? Or better yet, who else? The Holy Spirit is essential to Jesus' extraordinary mission. What you find in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit almost takes center stage in a, in a sort of um, offhand way uh, to Jesus. Jesus moves off the stage. The Holy Spirit now becomes the lead actor in the narrative. And yet, uh, his work, uh, you don't see him. The disciples sort of hear him. But he manifests himself in some amazing and miraculous ways as the church is being established in this book And Jesus gives a preview of what the Holy Spirit would do because the Holy Spirit would continue all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, Jesus promised his disciples that they would experience the Holy Spirit, and he promises us the same. We have uh, many passages where Jesus predicted that the Holy Spirit would come. And John chapter 14, verse 26 reads as follows. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he's planting this truth in their minds that there is a Holy Spirit that will come. And then one chapter later in John 15, verse 26, we read, But when the Helper comes, that's another name again for the Spirit, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Now that's that's interesting. The Holy Spirit will bear witness about Jesus, but through whom? Through the disciples who would be sent to proclaim His message. So uh, how is the Holy Spirit essential in this extraordinary mission? we find at least three different ways. The first is we have commands through the Spirit. We read that in verse 2. 
Jesus uh, had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. So the Holy Spirit was giving commands through Jesus to the apostles, which is, which is fascinating. Um, we find that the Word of God, guys, becomes the essential expression of the Holy Spirit's commands to us today as well. That's why we, that's why we spend time in this book. That's why we encourage you to spend time in this book each and every day because it is inspired by the Spirit. The commands that Jesus has given through the Spirit are coming to us from the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God through His Holy Spirit. So the Spirit gives commands. We also see baptism with the Spirit. And that is in verse 5. Now, um, Jesus uh, refers to them being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism... As we know it today is an outward expression of an inner transformation of a life change through the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Baptism doesn't save, but baptism demonstrates that you are saved. It's a step of obedience in following Christ. Baptism is essentially a public form of identification or union. So when you are baptized, if you've been baptized as a follower of Christ, you are demonstrating your union and identification with Jesus. Here, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to baptize the disciples in a unique and special way that demonstrates their union and their identity with Him in carrying out the mission that Jesus Christ had shared with them. Um, A professor named Tom Constable has a quotation about uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit. He writes, The key to the apostles' successful fulfillment of Jesus' commission was their baptism with and consequent indwelling by the Holy Spirit. Without this divine enablement, they would only have been able to follow Jesus' example. But with it, Jesus could literally continue to do His work and teach His words through them. And that's because where we get the final facet of the Spirit's ministry in this extraordinary mission. It is power from the Spirit. We find this in Acts 1.8, which I'll I'll read again. Um, This this verse is special to me because one of the very first classes I took in seminary, um, I took it with a man named Howard Hendricks, and he said, what you're going to do for your homework this week is you're going to look at Acts 1.8, and you're going to study it, and you're going to write down 25 observations about this one verse. We thought, you know, 25 observations about one verse. I mean, what, what could we possibly find in this verse that would lead us to 25 observations? Um, so we did it, and actually it's amazing. God unlocks your mind, and you can observe more, and it's great. So we get back to class that next lecture, and he says, now that you've done that, I want you to go back home next week and find 25 more observations on Acts 1.8. And you know what? We did it. And I've got my paper somewhere. Um, but this is, what it, this is how it reads. But you will receive power. Now that word power is the Greek word dunamin. Where we get our English word dynamite or dynamic. It is power through the Holy Spirit to do what only God can do, which we cannot do on our, on our, through ourselves and our own weaknesses. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this verse actually serves as a miniature outline for the book of Acts. Because the gospel starts in Jerusalem, moves to Judea and Samaria, and then eventually goes to the end of the earth where it ends with Paul in prison in the the city of Rome. But there's power 
that the Holy Spirit gives. The Spirit's presence and power would come upon the disciples the next chapter in Acts 2 with the day of Pentecost. And he would come and the the apostles and the disciples would speak in in, uh, different tongues of the nations and the birth of the church would happen. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. They would then go forth to perform miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, A scholar, the late W.H. Griffith Thomas, writes this. Oh, one more thing about, sorry, about being witnesses. Because Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. The word there in the Greek is martyres, where we get our English word martyr. So those who have died for their faith literally are being witnesses to their faith through, through the death that they die on account of their faith. And uh, Dr. Thomas writes this. They were now to be witnesses, and their definite work was to bear the testimony to their master, They were not to be theologians or philosophers or leaders, but witnesses. Whatever else they might become, everything was to be subordinate to the idea of personal testimony. It was to call attention to what they knew of him and to deliver his message to mankind. This special class of people, namely disciples, who are also witnesses, is therefore very prominent in this book, in the book of Acts. So they could be witnesses only through teaching the commands through the Spirit, having been baptized through the Spirit, and then empowered by the Spirit. That's why the Spirit is essential to the extraordinary mission. Well, finally, we learn that Jesus will return to complete His extraordinary mission. And we find this really in these last few verses of our passage. That's like like we're saying, the kingdom. The kingdom was established at creation. It was broken in Genesis 3. And Jesus has come so that he might reestablish that right relationship with God through himself as the king of kings. And he's coming again to reestablish what all creation has been groaning and waiting for, which is the glorification of of us as sons of, of God, as children of God, when we are raised to new life, and Jesus making all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is going to be a good day. Now, of course, Jesus can't return until he has departed. He departed and went to be with the Father. And uh, it's fascinating to think about this scene as the disciples are watching him literally rise up. And the text says that a cloud envelops him. And the cloud oftentimes in the scriptures referred to God's presence, this Shekinah glory of God being present with his people and in creation. And here, we see this Shekinah glory cloud gathering Jesus up. Uh, But the ascension mirrors the return. And the the angelic messengers say that. Why are you looking up? This Jesus who's gone up into heaven will return in the same way from heaven. I'm reminded of scriptures such as Hebrews 12, 2, which admonish us. Looking to Jesus, which is literally what the disciples were doing, as he went up, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where Jesus sits currently in heaven, awaiting the day that is appointed for his return. We also read with this connection of the cloud, and you read it throughout the Old Testament in Daniel 7.13, which is a really important Old Testament prophetic prediction of the return of the Son of Man. Jesus references it in the Gospels, referring to his return as well. 
And then we see in the book of Revelation a connection to Jesus' return in this cloud as well. Um, Verse 7 of Revelation 1, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Jesus is returning and will return to complete his extraordinary mission. I saw a a quotation from a scholar, Richard Longenecker, which I think he's just got a great last name, um, which must qualify him for something. But he's got great writing as well. And he summarizes this section of uh, the book of Acts that we've been looking at today with these following words. Uh, The Christian church, according to Acts, is a missionary church that responds obediently to Jesus' commission, acts on Jesus' behalf in the extension of his ministry, focuses its proclamation of the kingdom of God in its witness to Jesus, is guided and empowered by the self-same spirit that directed and supported Jesus' ministry and follows a program whose guidelines for outreach have been set by Jesus himself. Luke's point is that the missionary activity of the early church rested not only on Jesus' mandate, but also in His living presence in heaven and sure promise of His return. I think that is a great quotation to summarize what we've been learning, not just this morning, but throughout our time together this fall. Because it was the great promise of this return that Jesus' disciples held on to. And they became his apostles, and they gained courage to carry out his extraordinary mission that he left them here to accomplish. And they began through the Holy Spirit and continued the work that Jesus did. And what's amazing to me is that Jesus really did choose ordinary men. And you, I know we've been saying this, and we've studied their lives. Uh, they really were ordinary. We get that even in the text here. Does anyone notice What the angelic messengers say, what are their first words in in verse 11? Can anyone just say what their first words to the disciples are in verse 11 of Acts 1? Can you just just say it out? Do you hear hear a a men of Galilee? Sorry, I've got tinnitus and mild hearing loss. Men of Galilee. Another way of saying that, guys, is you hicks. Why are you looking? It, it really is. Galilee was a common place. It was not an urban center of development and, and cosmopolitan success. It was the sticks. And Jesus used these guys to do something so incredible and so amazing. Just think about how they have left this legacy. I began thinking about some of the different disciples and their lives and the legacy they left. We have James who's the brother of John, was martyred for his faith in Acts chapter 12. He indeed was a witness. We have Peter, a common fisherman, who preached. He wrote letters of the New Testament. And he indeed um, supplied, I I believe, Mark with his content for the Gospel of Mark. And and Peter, as predicted, as Max mentioned it last week, was, was his arms were stretched out, and according to church tradition, he was crucified upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Um, that may or may not be true, I don't know. But he, he was still crucified for his witness. Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner, wrote a book of the New Testament, a gospel. Thomas, 
who we learned about his doubt that we can all relate to, according to tradition of church history, made it all the way and took the gospel all the way to India so that people in that part of the world might know Jesus. And then we have John, who lived a long life, but he lived it mostly at the end of his life in exile on the island of Patmos. But he was still able to write his gospel. He was still able to write three letters. He was still able to write the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the Bible. What a legacy these common, ordinary men have left. And that's where we get to the application, which should not be new to us as we think about what we've been learning throughout this semester. That, guys, we are invited to join Jesus on his extraordinary mission. The work that Jesus began, what he began to do and teach, that the Holy Spirit now continues, he still continues to do it through us. He still continues to empower us to carry his message, which is central, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is essential, as we await the return of Jesus Christ to finish the work that he's left us here to do. You can kind of consider if the book of Acts has 28 chapters, that we are in the 29th chapter as we continue this kingdom work that God has us here to do. We, we don't live for this world. We live for the world that is to come. And there's still work to do. I heard it once said, if you're not dead, you're not done. And I know there are times when I wake up and just think, well, Lord, really, is there really anything I could offer today? And the answer is always yes. The answer is always yes. If we avail ourselves to him and if we pray, Lord, give me opportunities. Allow me to have conversations. I can remember many times when I used to live in the Northern Virginia area and commute on the, the metro. Just, Lord, can you, can you open up a conversation for me just to, just to start a conversation with someone about spiritual things? And a lot of times, guys, he would provide those conversations and answer those prayers. He's placed us in our communities to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people, to make disciples, whether that's through the influence we can still have with our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, Stan, as you're going to see your, your great-granddaughter for Christmas, Lord willing. Um, with neighbors and friends, we all have influence. Now, the season of Advent is a special one. It's, it's interesting. I know Stan mentioned the rearview mirror. Um, I actually liken Advent to driving a car because when you drive your car, you are checking the rearview mirrors. You are looking back just to see what's behind you. That's safe, responsible driving. And we do that with, with Christmas, right? We, we do look back. And that's the great celebration of the incarnation of Jesus with us in human form. But when we drive, do we, do we look in the rearview mirror most of the time? No, I, I hope not. <laughs> that's, that's just one thing. Just, hey, for people on, on camera, um, one thing that bothers me about movies, I don't know if you've noticed this, is when they show scenes of people driving and there's a person in the passenger seat, the driver of the car looks over to the person in the passenger seat to talk to them for like 20 seconds. And I'm thinking, that is not real. You've got to look ahead. I don't know if I'm the only one that notices this, but from now, yeah, from now on, you'll go, oh my gosh, that is not authentic. Um, but when we drive, we are looking through the windshield at what's ahead of us. And, and that's Advent. We do look back and we celebrate what's behind. But most of our attention needs to be what is coming down the road? What does God have for me? Because he is coming again. What has he prepared for me to do? How can I prepare my heart? You know, the, 
the, uh, the song Joy to the World, which we sing, which is a, a great song and, and it is appropriate for Christmas, um, is actually really about the future. It's not so much about the past. Um, it's about looking ahead to joy to the world, the Lord has come in the future, sort of from a, a past perspective. Um, let heaven and nature sing. Uh, he rules the world with truth and grace. That's happening in the future. And He is coming again. But until He does, He has work for us to do. An extraordinary mission for us to accomplish. Which is so exciting and so humbling. And so as we just think about closing, I'll give you some time in in small groups to huddle around the fires for a little bit just to discuss some of these items. Um, Will we be be willing to allow God to use us to accomplish this mission? Will we be more committed to His Word and to His message each and every day so that we might be adept in sharing His Word and His message with people? Will we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit as we share His message with those around us and the Holy Spirit equips us? Will we be expectant for the return of Christ and allow that to motivate us to share Him, to model Him, to demonstrate His grace and truth to the world around us as ordinary men? Because, as we have learned, Jesus uses ordinary men to accomplish this heaven-centered, extraordinary mission that He's called us to do. I hope that we will be available as He calls us. For um, discussion time, as you huddle around the fire, I would love for you to answer these questions. What are your biggest hesitations in allowing God to use you to accomplish His mission? And then, if you'd like, which lessons from the lives of the disciples this fall have meant the most to you? I'll pray and then give you some time to do that. And um, I do say thank you. Thank you for uh, your presence here. Thank you to folks who are online who have joined us throughout the fall as well. It has been a journey. um, And we are at the end of this part of the journey on this extraordinary mission. But of course it will continue. And, And we will look forward to the spring and what that has. And I do want to say gratitude as well for Max and all of his work in, uh, in running our technical support. And he's been a great partner in this too. So just a, just a, a quick round of applause for my brother Max. So. All right. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your presence, for your Holy Spirit being alive at work in us. Thank you for the humbling privilege that you call us to be about, which is joining you in this extraordinary mission. Give us humble hearts, available hearts, eyes to see as you see the world around us that needs the Savior, Jesus Christ, Uh, especially at this time, Lord. And thank you for, for these men. Thank you for those who have joined us online. We trust that all that we have been working through and learning and studying will not be in vain because um, in you, our labor is never in vain. Um, We love you. We thank you so much and pray that we will glorify you in thought, word, and deed this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.